You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends. So glad you could join me today. I have a special guest from Russia. Her name is Galina Lapina, and I actually flew out of the country to go and record with her. And on that trip, I tried to do too much in one day, and it probably had an impact on this episode. Fortunately for us, I didn't say a whole lot. I let my guest do most of the talking, but I prompted her, and I believe she tells an incredible story of her life's journey. And so I'm proud of that. I may sound a little tired, but it's because I flew out and I had an I had equipment malfunction. So you may notice I respond to one of her questions with a total non sequitur. And it's because we had to do an edit job on this episode because so much of it was lost due to my equipment breaking on my way out of the country. So lesson learned there. I should have gotten one of those fragile stickers and that way hopefully the People working at the airport would have handled my luggage more carefully, but they did not. And so we had to piece this one back together. I couldn't fly back out of the country once we got to the editing phase and do it again. And I much prefer to do podcasts in person because it's it's so much better, 10x better in my opinion. So you'll hear my guest Galena talk about how she achieved financial independence at a very young age, how she's traveled the world looking for a place that she could call home and... We also talk about dry fasting. She used dry fasting to get out of a very low point in her life, a low point where she says one time she got caught in a in a rip current and almost let it take her. But fortunately for us, she swam around it and lived to tell her story, and it is it is really good. And she gives details, like the coach she used for her dry fast. So if you're interested in a 24, 72-hour fast, something like that, she gives the name and contact information of the coach she used out of Ukraine. So dry fasting, relationships, hitting low points, how to get out of them, how you attract what you believe, books that impacted us and our thinking. She's very big on Jules Cameron's The Artist's Way. I share a book that a client sent to me that was really impactful. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback. If you want to write to me, contact.manoverseas at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram at man underscore overseas. Hit me up in the DMs and let's get going with this one because, man, this is so good. So I'm going to turn it over to myself and Galena Lapina. Enjoy this conversation, please. Galena, welcome to the Man Overseas podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Hi, Brad. So great to be here. And you and I, sharing this story with listeners, had a chat that was scheduled for 20 minutes on my calendar that went, what, two hours? <laughs> so I knew we'd have a great podcast episode ahead of us. I'm just so glad you're here and thankful. We're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. So you've lived such an interesting life, but one of the things that stood out about your life's journey because of its ties to fire, and I don't know if you know this, but this podcast actually started as a fire podcast, a financial independence retire early, 
And they say the riches are in the niches, but I'm not after riches. I'd rather be more of a poor man's Joe Rogan and have interesting discussions with interesting, smart people. So the podcast is kind of evolved from, from there. I've known people who face situations similar to what you faced as it pertains to Costa Rica. And so I want to delve into that. If we can kind of start in the middle, would you be cool with that? Sure. Okay. So I don't want to steal your thunder. Is that a saying in Russia, steal your thunder? Have you heard that before? There's something similar, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what does that sound like? In Russian? Yeah. Oh, I'll need to remember now. It's been a while. My Russian is not as good as my English, unfortunately. Really? Yeah, yeah. I had to relearn it. Luckily, now that I've started doing some work in the Russian language in the last three months, it, it started to come back a little better. But I still think mostly in English. Hmm. Unless it's the topics that I grew up with, and mm -hmm. then I can think Russian. So when did you learn English? I started learning it in school. I think I was about seven. About seven years old? Yeah. Interesting. That's when my wife started learning English. Yeah, and I learned it like all the way through high school, all the way through college. And now it's your primary language, and Russian is more secondary, huh? Well, yeah, living in the United States since 2006 kind of did the trick. Okay, so let's get into that later, if yeah. you don't mind. sure. Costa Rica. So what brought you there, and how does that tie into FIRE? So I went to Costa Rica after I retired. Okay. So we might need to start the story a few years ahead of that. <laughs> Whenever you like. So maybe even a few years ahead of that. So let me do a brief version and you can ask more questions, whatever you want to know more. So I grew up in Russia. I was born in Russia. And my whole life revolved around wanting to be free. Because as we all know, we kind of react to what we didn't have when we were little. So we want to have it in our life. And in the way that I was growing up, it's like you have to do the things a certain way. And yes, you can do this. No, you can do this. My first internal decision to create a freedom lifestyle happened when I was eight years old. And it happened when I had a conversation with my dad. And I was a good student. I was always an A student. I get everything done early and, you know, get good grades. Like I never was a trouble child. And I did everything. I washed the dishes. I finished my homework. And I was telling my dad, hey, dad, I'm going to go play with my friends. And he said, no. And I'm like, well, why not? I did my homework. I finished everything. And he's like, no. I was like, well, can you give me a reason? Because I don't understand. And then he said this phrase, which I still remember, and I don't remember many things, but that phrase, he said, while you live under my roof and I pay you bills, you got to do what I say. So I heard that through whatever filter I had as a child. And the first 30 seconds to a minute, I was pissed. I was like, this is unfair. And like, what the heck? And in about 30 seconds to a minute, I'm like, wow. He just gave me a roadmap to freedom. So to do what I want, I need to move out of my parents' mm -hmm. house and I need to start making my own money. And that's it. So my first level of freedom in that way was when I left my hometown and I went to Moscow for college. And then after that, I moved to the United States right after graduation. Sorry, what's so, that called? The university? It was called Technological University, Moscow State Technological University. Mm. I got a master's in computer science. 
So then I got a job in a software development company and I managed... Sorry, I want to interrupt you again. I Please. hope you don't mind. Is yeah. it a beautiful campus? They don't have campuses in Russia. Mm. Not everywhere. Like that college was like a standalone building and they had a set of dormitories and the first couple of years we live far, far away. And it's like subway to college every day. And then after the two years... Everybody moves to the building that's right next door. But it's still just like one building and another building. There's no real territory. There are some campuses that are like that, but many of them are not. So then I moved away from Russia to U.S. Totally a whole another story how I manifested going to U.S. About five months later after I set that intention. So that was fun. And then I came here and I worked in the corporate world for quite a while. I was a software developer. I was actually writing code. Can you believe it? Really damn good, by the way. Mm. And then I became a system analyst, then a business analyst, then a project manager. And going that for quite a while, and I moved to the United States and like I reached all my goals and, you know, I got a house, I got a car, things are good. And I got really kind of sad and depressed because I couldn't come up with the next goal. Then I got into personal development. Long story short, I got really to do, start doing coaching and trainings and all of that. And in a while, that good old book of Tim Ferriss for our work week crossed my path. <laughs> At the perfect time, I would imagine, because I think the book was released in 07. Of course, I didn't find out about it until after I quote unquote retired. But what a book I, it's had. And a huge impact on so many people. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And I read the book shortly after it came out, actually. But for about 10 years, I've done nothing with it. I read the book. And back right then, I was like, this is the lifestyle I want. I don't want to work in the office. I don't want to go there every day. I want to travel the world. And I want to be in a warm, sunny place, not the rainy place. And I wanted it. I dreamt about it, but nothing was happening. And I've done all sorts of personal development work, worked on myself, healed all sorts of past traumas, created some awesome manifestations. And then there was one time I'm sitting and I'm wondering, why is it that I achieved all the other goals, but I have no progress at all on my freedom lifestyle? And I asked myself two questions that I usually ask when something that I want is not happening. Question number one was, what's my level of commitment to that goal? And I realized that I actually didn't even set it as a goal. So it was close to a zero at that point. So it was no surprise that nothing was happening. Then I asked myself a second question. What would I do if I was 100% committed? And the answer that came at the time was quit your job. And I was shocked. I was like, what do you mean quit your mm -hmm. job? I don't have another source of income. I don't have investments. I don't have anything. How am I going to live? But the voice in my head, that one that said quit your job, was really persistent. At the time, I already started to do coaching, and I had a few clients, but it wasn't very consistent. It was more like a side hobby with a little bit of pay. And I kind of talked my mind into, maybe I'm supposed to do coaching. I'll do what I love, and I'll do it from anywhere. And it's going to be great. And if I don't make enough money, well, a few months later, I'll go get another job. And my first iteration at Financial Freedom, I came to my boss, and I said, I'm quitting. And she's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. I am. And she's like, but I, I can't live without you. I'm like, well, too bad because I need mm -hmm. to live Seattle. I want to travel and I want to do coaching. And she's like, well, what can we do? I was like, there's nothing to do. I need my time and I need to get away from here. And she said, well, what if I allow you to work remotely? 
And back then, I was working as a consultant at Boeing. There were no remote work back then. Nobody would say yes to that. And I'm like, really? Well, that would solve part of my issue, but then I'll still need to work. Even if not in Seattle, I'll still need to work a lot. And then she said, well, what if I allow you to choose how many hours you want to work and you don't have to work full time? I'm like, hmm. And then I said, well, what if some week I want to work? And then, and she's like, you just choose whenever you want to work and then you work. And if you don't want to work, you don't work. And I was like, wow, that's a really, really hard deal to say no to. So I said yes, <laughs> obviously. And I transitioned into that arrangement. And then a couple months later, I packed my bags and put my stuff in an Audi and started driving south. So traveled around US, looked at different places, lived in Arizona for a year in Sedona. And then Boeing had layoffs and the way layoffs work back then, they have to lay off contractors before they lay off all the full-time people. And I had to come back to Seattle because there's no project management jobs in Sedona, Arizona, and there's not so much remote work. So I came back to Seattle. How long were you in Sedona? <sighs> a year. What an a awesome place. Oh man. my God, it was it was a good time. I haven't been, time. but I hear about the hikes and it was so good. The, the the nature was beautiful. And at a time, I really craved more spirituality in my life because I had a lot of serious, logical part of my life, everything planned, everything known. And, and I came to Sedona and I'm standing in a line in a coffee shop and people talk about chakras and auras. And, and I was like, wow, that's fascinating. I, I don't have people like that in my life. So it was just really interesting for a year. And then I was feeling complete with that town. And I left, I still love to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there for me. So long story short, I came back to Seattle. I stayed without a job for a couple months and then I got back to work. And my salary pretty much doubled through a series of events. So I was doing the same thing, pretty much at the same company, but making double the money. And Boeing was paying the same money for me. And then I, I kind of had an aha moment. I'm like, well, I wanted to create this financial freedom and freedom lifestyle by doing what I love from wherever I want. And what if it doesn't have to be that way? What if I could just make money doing what I'm getting paid very well for, and then I make so much that I will create passive income by investing, and then I don't have to work at all, and then I can do what I love all day, every day, and not worry about money. So I sat down as a Google Sheets and Excel Master, I sat down and I put in certain numbers in the Excel spreadsheet and I asked myself, well, what, what kind of investments can I find? And I had no experience in investment back then at all, zero. And I'm like, well, what if I find something at 20%? How long will I need to work at this job to get to the passive income of, let's say, 100K a year? And I put the numbers in and I really reduced my expenses because I was renting my house in Airbnb and I had no... Well, that's a whole another story. It will be a long one, so let's not go into it. Mm -hmm. But I pretty much, I reduced all my expenses because all my major expenses were covered. And I looked at the spreadsheet in the formulas and everything, and I saw that I only need to work at the salary that I had for two years. If, and that's a big if, I find an investment vehicle that can get me 20% a year. I had no idea where I can find those things. Most people said I was crazy, and those things don't exist. But I checked in, I was like, you know what, I am committed this time. And I went and I studied everything. I looked at real estate, I did courses in like Forex and stock trading. At least there was no crypto back then, at least not for me. And I tried many different things. And then I found a specific investment that was income producing websites that 
you know how some websites, they just write really good content and then they sell ad space and that's how they make money. And there was a company that was doing all the work and all they needed was the money to purchase the website to start with so they don't do it from scratch. So that was their model. I provided the capital to purchase the website. They do all the work to maintain it, keep writing content. And then we split the profits and I got my 20%. So I did that and I got one site. A year later, I got another site. A year later, I got another site and I hit my goal and I quit my job. Wow. 20% annualized return. Yeah. That's not easy to do. No, no, it's not easy. Did you feel like it was too good to be true? Given their business model and given I am in IT, it actually made a lot of sense. And math made sense. The only thing they could not predict, because they're out of business now, by the way, is how much the online space will change. Because Google and Facebook and all these algorithms start changing at lightning speed. And very soon they could not keep up with the changes. And yeah, it was a bad, sad story that really hurt me because I lost those investments. That's later. So basically how I got to Costa Rica, that's where we started, right? I was retired and I was traveling and I lived in LA. Then I was trying to really figure out what's next for me. And what's next for me was diving deeper into my purpose and really coaching and how I want to change the world and who I want to help, but also looking for a place that feels like home and the community of people that feel like my people. And even understanding who are my people and what hmm. am I looking for <laughs> took hmm. some time. And at the end, I realized that this like interesting breed of like spiritual entrepreneurs, like somebody who likes creating businesses, working with investments and making money, but they also believe into something more than just the material things. And I found people like that in many places after I came out of the closet of being a spiritual person, of course. And I lived in LA for about five months. And after nomadically traveling for a while, I just needed a place to ground. So I rented an Airbnb on a monthly rental. And in June of that year, I started having that hinge of, it's time for me to go somewhere, but I didn't know where. So I gave notice and I tried hmm. to look for a place and I thought I'm going to move to San Diego because it was closed down, but nothing was working out. I couldn't find a place. And I know if something is not working, it's not in the flow. So then I just set out the question to the universe. It's like, all right, universe, like if it's not San Diego, tell me where I'm supposed to go. By the way, have you read the book Flow? I uh, know. Oh, highly, highly recommend. Who wrote it? A Polish guy, so I can't pronounce his last name. Okay. But my client in Scotland, who at the time was my youngest client, so surprisingly, it came from him. But awesome, awesome book. I am the type that will skip from book to book, so I'll be reading five at one time. Uh-huh. When I pick that one up, I couldn't put it down, and I read it from front to back. It forced me to discard every other book I was reading, but it came out in July of 08. It's called Flow. The subtitle is The Psychology of Optimal Experience. Ah. Awesome. You would love it. And the author? The author, Mahali C-S-I-K-S-Z-E-N. T-M-I-H-A-L-Y. Oh, my God. Yeah, definitely would not remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you said flow, the first book I thought was The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. 
not familiar. That one was really good. It was an experiment where he said yes to everything in life. And it was a crazy mm. roller coaster. I've heard that. Naval Ravikant, are you familiar with him? Yes. So he has said that his brother, and I think this is Kamal? him being humble, but his brother his Kamal, brother Kamal uh-huh. says that he goes through life saying yes to everything. And that's acceptance. And... Everything is pretty much borrowed from somebody else and put into your own words. Right. But that one to me is is like, I can't believe he just shared this on the Tim Ferriss podcast in front of millions of listeners because we all know that we've heard a variation of to everything that you encounter, just say yes, accept what is. There's probably not a more ubiquitous phrase in america right now it is what it is is like the most popular thing to say which is why i refuse to say it (laughs) i just don't like cliches like that that mean nothing but anyway flow you would love sorry i interrupted you you were saying i was talking about the time when i was in la and i was trying to figure out my next home and i was trying san diego didn't flow and then i just Surrender it. It's like, okay, fine, universe. You tell me where I'm going because I already gave the notice. I'm leaving here in a month. And then in that week when I posed that question and I just let it go, from every corner, I started hearing Costa Rica, Costa Rica, Costa Rica. My friends went to Costa Rica. There was an event in Costa Rica. I was trying this modality called Networks Pilot Analysis, which is kind of like the mix of like chiropractic and energy work. Super fascinating. Mm. And the guy who started it, he was having a retreat in Costa Rica. In three weeks or so. I'm like, hmm, isn't that an interesting timing? So I went there. And then friends introduced me to other people in Costa Rica. And they ended up in this conscious community slash real estate development that I ended up investing in and staying for a while. And that's mm-hmm. what that's what brought me there originally. And what happened in Costa Rica is a whole another story. <laughs> Which I would like to get into. Because... I have shopped for real estate in Costa Rica, and the first thing of note for me was, because I have a real estate license in America, in Texas, you do market analyses all the time so that you can arrive at basically a range, like bottom of the market versus top of the market. If somebody's asking top of the market for their home, their house better be in immaculate condition, no blemishes on the wall. So fresh paint, probably new floors. You're trying to get top dollar per square foot or in some places per square meter. So I've shopped there and seen houses that were, let's say, $400,000 and have this realtor who I'm supposed to be trusting tell me, well, the house down the street went for a million. And I'm like, what you just said is like saying it is what it is. That means nothing to me. What year was it built? How many bedrooms, baths does it have? How many square footage? Are you only going to tell me that the house down the street sold for a million? And that really was all he planned to tell me. So it was obvious he was representing the seller. They had no multiple listing service where you could do comparative market analyses to determine the, or at least arrive at a market value for the home. So I didn't feel comfortable buying there. And then I ran into a problem with my partner. I think I may have 
touched on it with you, but I was on my bachelor party, therefore not returning calls when he believed it was time to sign paperwork. And the salesperson did a good job of putting the pressure on high pressure sales, which I am not one to fall for ever, but it works a lot of times. So anyway, he moved on this property without me, which he has since tried to sell. But tell me about your experience. Well, so I came to that real estate development because a friend of mine introduced me to the people who were running the project. So there was already some sort of trust transfer because I trusted my friend. And when I arrived, they had a beautiful vision, which very much aligned with what I wanted in my life. Their vision was to have a community of leaders living on the land. And the land was beautiful, by the way. It's this gorgeous rolling hills with the waterfall going at the bottom. There's already a retreat center, so there's space to live. And they were pre-selling space and houses to be built in the future, obviously. So they needed to collect funds so they can build homes. And they didn't own the land fully. They had a mortgage on the land. So there is a lot of parts of the vision that hit many of my buttons of what I was looking for community of like-minded people who wanted to like change the world, like spiritual, but also business oriented. I love health. I love nature. So part of the vision was having a local organic farm that we just grow food on the property and then we eat it. And it's like the best ever, like everything I was looking for was there. And I was so sold on the vision that I probably didn't do enough logical analysis to be truthful. And there probably could have been a lawyer looking over my contract that I signed that I didn't send to any lawyer because I just really wanted to believe that that's exactly what's going to be. And we're going to build this beautiful vision together. And I raised a pretty good amount of money to invest in the project because I didn't have what I wanted to have, which is specific houses and specific spots. And I n- never had an experience in fundraising either. So it was my first experience, and I raised over a million dollars in a month. Whoa. From Russians? No, Americans. Mostly Americans. Americans. Mostly Americans. Okay. And my, well, I don't know if it's a mistake. Lessons learned, let's call it that way. I raised it as personal debt. You, I'm sorry, you did what? I raised it as personal debt because I didn't want to invest in the project in Costa Rica. That was too risky, but they felt comfortable lending it to me. And they knew exactly where the money was going. I was upfront, like there was no misguidance of any sorts. And the agreement that I had is the money was supposed to come back guaranteed in two years, but the goal was one year. And contract said two to five, handshake oral agreement said one, I trusted the handshake agreement and I made deals with the people that I borrowed money from that I'm going to pay them back in a year. And that's not what happened. So very soon, there's a lot of personal things that happened in the family that was running the project and the community started to fall apart. They switched from building a community of leaders to now wanting to be the boss and telling us exactly what to do and how to do it and what they're going to do and not. There's a lot of things that started happening that was like the complete opposite of the vision that was sold. And after a few months, I realized it's not going to be a success. It's not going to happen. 
And we tried to help them. We tried to help them with the rest of the fundraising so they can keep up the mortgage. We tried to take care of the upset other investors because I was not the only one who was upset. And they just didn't listen. They said they knew better. They knew what to do. And they didn't need our advice or our help. And shortly after, they could make the payments for a while. And the original landowner foreclosed on the property and took it back from them. And with that went all our money, mine included. All my investors that loaned me the money, I still owe them the money. But the money they were supposed to return will no longer be back from there. And also I introduced a few of my friends who invested alongside with me. So I went through so much, not just financial reshuffling, because losing that amount of the money that's not mine was a shock. But Mm -hmm. the amount of personal growth that it triggered in me I honestly didn't think I would survive. Like the You didn't think you were what? I d di- I didn't think I would survive. Oh, you like, didn't think you'd some survive. Times they were pretty dark and I was in a, like oh, a God, really low yeah. state of depression and there's one time I was floating in the ocean and the rip current caught me and I almost didn't fight. Mm. Except in the last moment I'm like, no, it's not gonna solve anything. So there were like really, really low moments and even for that, looking back, I'm very grateful. Like it sucked. Like, I'm still dealing with it. It's not over. But one thing I learned was that my self-esteem and my confidence was very much, like, super tightly coupled with my accomplishments. So when I was this chick who retired at 33 and can do whatever she wants and travel, I felt good about myself. When I lost everything and I couldn't dig myself out of the hole and there's nothing I felt like I could teach to people because if my life is in shambles, what am I there to teach and coach? So I put all my programs on hold. I put all my coaching on hold and that dark cloud of like, I will never be able to get out and I will never be able to teach anybody anything. Then why continue? And then that realization is like, oh, so if I cannot give anything to people, I'm worthless. And the answer was, yes. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So it was a lot of inner integration. Luckily, I've done a lot of inner work by then. I was not a beginner. So I was really watching my thoughts. I was observing my thoughts. I was fascinated by my thoughts and what shapes and colors they took and and where they took me and my emotions too. And there was a lot of meditation involved There's a lot of self-processing involved. There's a lot of processing with other people and other professionals to really get to the bottom of why was I so stressed, upset, and depressed? Because it's not about the money, but it was about all the stories and all the meanings that I gave to the event. And when I got to that super low state, you know how we keep manifesting more of the same? So I lost that investment shortly after every other investment folded. The website company got shut down. The house that I own in Seattle, I sold it. And I lended the money to a friend who was running an event. He was supposed to pay me back in a week. And then shit happened during his event. He went super south and he couldn't pay me back. And a year later, he died in a car crash. So that money was gone. And it was just like, everything was like freaking domino. And I was watching it and I'm like, what am I doing? Hmm. How am I creating this? What is going on? Hmm. And what was going on really is like couldn't overcome my emotional state. And then I kept attracting more of the same circumstances that aligned with that emotional state until I did. And it took about eight months 
of like almost daily meditation and dry fasting for seven days and and doing all sorts of things. Let's talk about that. Dry <laughs> fasting for seven days. That means no water. No food, no water. No food, no water for seven days. Yeah. Where'd you get the idea? Actually, my dad have done dry fasting for quite a few times. Mm, is that a Soviet thing? It's highly researched in Russia. Mm. Like the most amount of books written on dry fasting is in Russian. Is that because just in case? I don't know. Russian tend to do all sorts of crazy things, maybe. <laughs> but there's been a lot of, of dry fasting going on in Russia, and a lot of people actually studied it, and a lot of medical professions that studied it. And if you go on American Google, they say you're going to die after three days of not hmm. drinking, right? So for me, I did dry fasting. It was very interesting. I was meditating like every day for hours because mm. I, I needed to quiet my mind. It was too loud. It was too negative. I couldn't handle it. So I was meditating, meditating, and like it was not enough. It was not helping. So I'm like, man, I need like a hard reset. <laughs> I need a hard reset just to wipe down my brain and my thoughts and my emotions and start fresh. I was like, what can I do? And out of the blue in my head, like that strange voice that comes sometimes was, oh, you should do dry fasting. I'm like, hmm, interesting. So I called my dad because he'd done dry fasting many times. And I always looked at him as he was crazy. I've done water fasting. I've done juice fasting. I've done all sorts of fasting, but I've never done dry fasting. It seems like extreme. And I called my dad and I'm like, dad, why do you dry fast? And he's like, well, health wise, it's really good. It's like help with, help with like preventative stuff get rid of arthritis pains and stuff like that. Just kind of like resets your physical body really well. But also, and mind you, my dad is, well, was not spiritual, not religious, does not believe in energy. He's as like physical materialist as it gets. And then he's like, well, when I drive fast, he's like, usually on day five, I get into the state that's really hard to explain. It's like, I'm here but I'm kind of watching myself from up above and the colors are kind of brighter. And when I have a problem in my head, boom, there's a solution. And when I have questions, boom, I have insights and things are kind of just flow differently. And given that, like I heard that in his words, I'm like, oh my God, dry fasting opens up the channel. Hmm. And usually my emotions shift. I'm like, well, I'm interested in that. Tell me more. And he's like, well, if you want to do dry fasting, do not recommend doing it without supervision. And I do not recommend doing it without research. And if you want to start, start with a day, then do three days, then go longer. Well, I'm, I don't like longer and slower. So I did it one day. And then I found a woman who has a dry fasting retreat center in Ukraine for more than 10 years. She's been guiding people on dry fasts for more than 10 years. And I just wrote her on Facebook and she ended up organizing an online guided group to do that. And I went straight for seven days. And what I really wanted is mostly the mental emotional reset because I just, it was too much. And it was literally exactly what my dad said. Like the first three days was torture, not physically. Physically, I was fine. Actually, physically, it was much easier than water fast. I didn't have headaches. I didn't have dizziness, nothing. It was like physically, it was fine. There's a little bit of muscle aches and stuff, but totally okay what about sleeping you sleep much less on dry fasting way less like if you sleep three four hours a night it's a miracle like wow. you don't want to sleep like it's not that you're tired and exhausted like your body just doesn't want to sleep 
which is fascinating phenomenon. But the first few days is really, really hard because I get to find out how much I use food and drinks, not alcohol, like I don't drink alcohol, but like food, water, juices, whatever, as a way to escape uncomfortable emotions. Oh, I didn't feel well. Let me go eat something. Oh, I feel uncomfortable. Let me go drink something. And when all of that was taken away and all the time for buying groceries, prepping the meals, wash, cleaning the dishes, like all of that was taken away. I had all this time mm. and I couldn't do any of those things. Then all the emotions that I was avoiding came like, like right into my face. And it was hard because there's so much I kind of bear it up and like hold it up. But it was just floating up and I was like, fine, I guess it's time to feel. And for three days, I had to feel everything that I've suppressed for a little while. And it was really intense. And I was just feeling it, observing it, feeling it, observing it, doing my best to be kind with myself. But on day five, I woke up, not a single thought in my head. Inner dialogue, gone. Feeling of sadness, depression, whatever, gone. I woke in, it felt like I was like born anew. I felt like a baby <laughs> and I just like, I walked outside and I touched the tree and I just started crying of how much joy <laughs> I felt from connecting with nature. And I was like, oh my God, it worked. It totally worked. Did you have shoes on, socks on? Well, I'm sure not. It was Costa Rica. It was hot. Because they say there's something to connecting with the energy source. You there's know, from definitely the a lot of like grounding. For sure I do. Grounding pillowcases, I sleep on them all the time. And I walk bare feet too. But yeah, that reset was amazing. And then it actually stayed for quite a bit. And then it came to neutral. Like I was not like high, high, high happy for a while. Mm -hmm. I came back to neutral, but I was out of the deep end. All of that was just wiped. And I'm like, that's a great tool. I'm going to remember that. So I ended up using dry fasting as the way to reset between chapters in my life or when I needed a little deeper emotional cleaning. So like since then, I've done it about five times, seven days each. And I personally love it. And just for the listeners, do not do it without supervision or medical check. It's not a health advice. <laughs> do your own research, make your own decisions. But uh, yeah, I loved it. It was amazing. You had to hire a nurse? No, I did the remote kind of oh. coaching, consulting from that woman who did okay. the dry fasting because she was guiding us and she was telling us how to prep. She was telling us what to watch, like to watch out for during the dry fast. Like, because mm -hmm. there are certain things is like when this is going on, it's totally normal. Something like that goes on, probably should break the fast. So it was really highly tuning into myself at every day and, and seeing like, is it uncomfortable or is it dangerous? And where would and, someone go if they wanted to connect with this person? Well, her or name do you, do you yeah, I can, her? I can give her name. I absolutely love her. Yes, her name is Anna Yakuba and she lives in Ukraine. And she has a dry fasting retreat center there. And she also does remote retreats in other locations. Well, back then she was only speaking like Russian and Ukrainian. And it was a bummer because all my friends were asking me and I was like, I can't tell you anything. She speaks Russian. But since then, I think she found a team member who she uses as a translator and she does English speaking consultations now. How do you spell her name? So Anna, A-N-N-A. -N -N -A, and last name is Yakuba, Y-A-K-U-B-A. 
Ana Yacuba. Yeah, you could probably seven find Seven day dry fast. Could you start with her at one days or three days or is yeah, it? Yeah, she actually recommends doing like 36 hour dry fast, then go into mm. 36 hour dry fast and then go for longer. I just didn't want to do it slow. <laughs> but yeah, for most people, it is recommended to do it gradually. And does she charge a lot? No, not at all. Like? Give me a range. I mean, I, I I don't remember now, but for what it was, the value was is nothing. Yeah, so maybe seven days, five hundred dollars. Is that too much? I don't remember. Like it also depends. Do you come to her retreat center and live there and eat there? Let me go. Not eat during well, the drive fast, but like before and after or remote guidance. I don't know what her pricing is now. It's mm. been what like three years ago, but yeah. It's all easily available online. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, yeah, she collected enough success stories. She probably amazing. has raised She's her amazing. prices. She's very knowledgeable. She was very kind. And she also collected a team of people. It's not just her. It's really a, a space where they supported with education and like the recipes of how do you eat once you are out, right? Because mm-hmm. the exit period is very, very important. You don't just end dry fast and go and eat steak or drink two liters of water in one day. Even drinking liquids is gradual introduction and food is gradual introduction of specific kinds and specific times. So coming out of dry fasting is probably the most important time of fasting. How grateful for were you for food and drink? It was fascinating. I didn't want food, but drinking, even water, tasted like had so many dimensions. It was really? crazy. Like I, I tasted water and I was so funny. Like that first time that I did the dry fast, we had the water from the, I think it was from the well or from whatever that they get it from underground and filter and it goes into your tap. And then they had this super heavy rain that came the day before I broke the fast. So we put this like big buckets outside and caught the rainwater. And then I also froze some water and then I thawed it out. So I had like three types of water to taste. And it was fascinating. They all tasted differently. One of them was a little bit more sweet. One of them was a little bit more neutral. Another one was like really thick. And I'm like, whoa. So it was interesting. But yeah, water was good. Juices. I didn't even want juices. I think, yeah, fermented juices were really good. Like the sauerkraut type water where I fermented cabbage with probiotic bacteria without salt. And Mm. then I was drinking that liquid. That one tasted delicious. So good. Before I had a family, I used to do more fasting. And what I got up to, which is nothing relative to what you're talking about, but was a 48-hour fast. And I maybe it was 72 hours. I'm forgetting now. I I don't recall. But... I would allow myself water and black coffee. That's it. And I remember coming out of that eating oatmeal with peanut butter and walnuts and blueberries and maybe a hint of honey and giggling to myself because it was so good. Like <laughs> I couldn't, it was one of those emotions where I was laughing and I had never done that before where I'm laughing and eating at the same time because I'm so grateful for a meal. And the only thing I could compare it to is I remember reading a book called Ghost Soldiers, which was about war, obviously, and how people were treated and the lack of food that they're given and it may maybe that's the baton death march book i don't recall but 
regardless, it's one of those books that makes you grateful for what you're eating. And those are the best books, I think. That's so cool. It actually reminded me what was the most joyful moment of, of that first drive fast when the train came and it came on like the evening of day five. So the dry fasting you can do, there's like two ways to do it. One is like the strict one. That's the one like you don't even touch water. You don't rinse your mouth. You don't wash your hands. Like you, like there's no even contact with water on the outside of your body. And then there's soft dry fasting where you can like you know, jump in the ocean. Like you can be in contact with water and wash your hands, but you just don't consume it. You don't drink it. And I wanted to go hardcore. So I was like, I'm just going to do strict. And even Anna, she's like, you're in a hot climate. It's not recommended because you're going to sweat a lot and you're going to lose much more than you would otherwise. I'm like, no, yeah. I'm going to do hard as long as I can. Mm -hmm. And on day five, we could see the clouds gathering and it was not even dry season. It was not rainy season. It was dry season. It was not supposed to rain. Mm -hmm. And the clouds started to gather. I was like, you know what? If it's going to rain, I'm going to just go and I'm going to stand underneath that rain and I'm going to see what it feels like. And the night, it was already dark. And the rain came and it came like a wall of water just falling down. And I went outside and I stand under that rainwater and I had such a rush of energy going through my body. It was crazy. It was like up and down and I got hot. And then I felt this immense amount of joy and it was like in my heart and it was just radiating in all direction. I couldn't wipe off the smile of my face. <laughs> and I realized I haven't felt that level of joy in probably many years. Maybe never. It was fascinating. I'm that like, really? It was a complete reset. It was so beautiful. And there's something about <sighs> rain and the ocean and sunlight. And I have all these practices that I've gotten into where I drink water as soon as I wake up. I get sunlight within 30 minutes of waking up. There's so many things that we're so far removed from that people have done for 99% of human history. I mean, there's a reason that people are driven to the coast. If you're raised on the coast, you, you basically become addicted to the water. It's not like somebody would be raised on the coast and then move to Omaha. You never see it, right? You become a surfer or... You definitely have a boat as an adult. It's just the source, I think. Did we come from the water? And something to be said for a dip in the ocean as compared to a swimming pool, although yeah. that's good too. But there's a reason that showers can be uplifting. And getting 30 minutes of sunlight is so important, 30 minutes a day. Even walking is something that our ancestors, and by ancestors, I mean going back thousands and thousands of years, they did all that. We don't do it anymore. And people are on SSRIs, and oh, we have it so good, materially speaking. In fact, talking about eating, the last guy I had on the podcast from here told me that he spends $3,000 a month on food. What does he eat? He is a monster of a beast of a human. He is, <laughs> he's not a bodybuilder, I don't think. I don't know what constitutes a bodybuilder. I guess you'd have to enter into competitions. Mm -hmm. But I've always said better to look like a sprinter than a distance runner. 
And he definitely fits that mold of somebody that you'd want to look like. So when we ran sprints when I was in school, I would come in first. When we would run distance, I would come in last. But I always knew, well, I'd rather look like a sprinter than a distance runner. And I know the ills of distance running on your knees and things like that. And sure, you can have injuries sprinting too. You can have injuries doing anything, especially as you get older. But one of the reasons I love to come here is proximity to the track that's always open. I love to go on the track and sprint, 60-yard sprints or whatever it is. And our coach, when we would report in January, so we'd get to school three weeks prior to the rest of the students for baseball. I played baseball in college. And he would have us do 610-yard sprints and then turn around and jog backwards the rest of the way. And that was to ensure strength of balance in your legs And this was back when you couldn't just look up things on the internet. You know, he probably went to a retreat and learned these things that we started doing. Well, when I got out of college, I thought, I'm going to continue living like a college kid, not just financially, but physically. And it just so happened that our practice was over like at 5, 530. So I continued Five five thirty. I'm in the gym every day, and I've been doing that for 20 years. And it's just consistency of going into the gym. I've made it habitual to where I don't consider myself a disciplined person. It's just what I do. And I, I justify it to my family as I'm the head of household, and you want that person to be healthy. So if it sometimes means I'm going to be late for dinner, you know, I'm going to try like hell to make it in time so that we eat dinner as a family. I think that's a wonderful thing, a tradition that should be ongoing. But the family understands, too, that we're not always going to, to make it on time. You pay something like 3000 a month to live here, which is the highest of anyone I've spoken to. So talk to me about that, because... I'm sure you have friends that live for $1,000 a month in a pretty nice place. Yeah. So how'd you come to the decision that you were going to spend three times that amount, if you don't mind me asking? Sure. So I looked at many places, and some of them were really nice. Some of them were not so nice, of course. And I started with, well, I just need a one-bedroom for myself. Studio just felt too crowded and I wanted to separate my working space and my sleep space. And shortly after I realized that I started asking myself questions of like, what would be my ideal place? What would be the place that I just walk into and I just feel so happy, so creative, so in the flow that everything that I need to focus on and create in my life is just going to be easy and joyful and the space has to contribute to my energy. And I realized that I like spaces that have a lot of light. I like spaces that are have a lot of kind of like white. So I don't like the dark wood and all that. Not me. Like all the... Rich mahogany. Yeah. Not for you. Yeah. Are you old enough to remember the Cold War? Not to change subjects so radically, but... 
I can remember doing drills for getting under the desk in case of a nuclear. Yeah, yeah. you had that as well. So that would have come from us, <laughs> you know, and vice versa. But we also had, we lived close to a sugarcane mill, and they had this loud sound that it would make like a siren at noon on Saturdays. And that was just a test. The Soviets had bombed us at noon on Saturday. We'd have been effed because we would have thought it was a test. The Cold War, were, that was a tense time. But you and I would have been, I still don't know how old you are, and I'm not going to ask, but <laughs> I was below 10, right? The 80s was Reagan and Gorbachev and tear down this wall. You told me once that the Gulag Archipelago was required reading in school, which doesn't surprise me because my German buddy said that they learned a lot of Nazi history in school. Did you also learn about the Holodomor? Is that familiar? Does that ring a bell? Holodomor or Holodomor? No? Okay. Do you have any Ukrainian friends or relatives? You do? Yeah. So when you heard news that Russia was making moves in Ukraine, did that surprise you at all? Yeah. I have this story I like to tell. There's a, an author named Brian Tracy, and he wrote a book called Goals. And it was gifted to me by my first boss out of college. And I was listening to it on CD. Because I'm one of these people that I like to buy the hardcover book or the physical book and the audible version. And I'll get read to at a high speed. It just helps me to focus. But I was listening to the CD. This must have been 2006 before you listened to music in other ways. And this friend of mine from high school, he got into the car and he expected to hear some bumping tunes that we were going to go out to on a Friday night. And Brian Tracy started talking about goals. And he took the CD out and he weighed it in his hand and he was just laughing at me. And... He was like, what are you doing, bro? And I could tell like he just wasn't mature yet. And it must have been about six, seven years later, he was asking in a Facebook group of our high school friends if we would please go sit in his section of the restaurant where he was waiting tables. That is something I'll never forget. He should have asked me where I got a copy of the Goal CD. But he didn't, of course. It's always the people who... It's one of those the rich get richer situations, right? Those who need it most won't get the books. They won't do the meditations. They won't do the journaling. My favorite quote as it pertains to books is, the true rewards in life are on the top shelf, and the way you get to them is by standing on the books you read. Well, when I go outside at where I'm staying now, city condos, it's like a rectangle shape, and you can see inside everybody's room. Not that I'm peeping Brad, but I you can't help it but see everybody, and everybody's on their phone at 10 p.m., 
And I think not one of these people has a book in their hand. And just because of that, I go inside and I grab a book. I got so obsessed with books that when I started traveling the world, I would bring a carry-on size luggage and pay the extra $35 because I prefer physical books to Kindle and bring 20 books with me. What was the biggest eye-opener about America after having grown up in Russia? For me, it was more of a culture shock when I went back after spending a few months in Seattle when I went back to Russia. That one was an interesting one because in Seattle, and it's so interesting, everybody has a different experience of the city. Some people's like, oh, people are so unfriendly. And some people, oh, people are so friendly. And I don't know what it depends on. Maybe people just reflect us to us. And when I was in Seattle in the first few business trips, I was just so at awe with life and nature and beauty and people who are so open. I would just go down the street and somebody say, hey, you look beautiful today. And you say, thank you. And you just keep going. It was just so free, my experience of it, anyhow. And I remember I came back to Russia after like spending four months in Seattle. It was my longest business trip before I moved. And I was in one of those buses, you know, public transportation going home and I'm like happy and joyful and smiling and talking to people and I started talking with this guy or he started talking with me. I smiled back, we're talking and then I was about to leave because it was my stop and he's like, hey, can I have your phone number? And I'm like, well, thank you very much, but no. And he's like, well, why not? I'm like, no, it's just not, I don't feel like giving you my phone number. It's okay, but thank you for the conversation. It was great. And then he said, well, why did you smile at me then if you don't want to give me your phone number? And I was like, oh, shit, I'm back in Russia. I got to dial down my friendliness. Like, that was a culture shock. In Seattle, mm. being friendly means nothing that other than that you're just friendly. And in Russia, very often people are so kind of like in their own inner worlds, and it takes a while to break the ice, then if people sends you love like if they're just friendly and that they're just loving people think that means something that mm. means they want to be with you they want to have sex with you like whatever mm -hmm. it cannot be just hey here's a happy friendly person so at least that was my experience perspective on what happened and yeah and i realized when i went back to russia i kind of dulled down my friendliness i dialed down my energy so it wouldn't be so happy because then it would stand out and it would give people wrong impressions and make cause some drama when I'm not intending it to. So that was interesting. So I didn't have a culture shock of US. I had the one going back before I moved away. That's interesting because people don't compliment each other as much anymore. Primarily, I think, because their heads are down most of the time. I think the Me Too movement hurt a lot of compliments being given yeah. to women so they're hesitant there but the guy that felt rejected i try to explain this to my guys a lot how you take rejection can really flip the script for a woman you know if you are rejected and then the next time you see her you smile and say hello there's a good chance she may now be interested whereas she wasn't before when I'm told by women what guys text them and things, I'm just so cringe, like, oh my God, this guy has learned nothing. But where would he learn it? 
You know, it, it's it's so tough because I don't know. It's it's like guys. Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. I could talk for hours and hours, but you've got to be able to take rejection like a man. I mean, just because you smiled and had a good conversation, he should be content with that. I mean, that's why people don't smile more is because they're afraid that you're going to be a weak man. And if your ass, you don't want to have to let him down and face somebody saying, oh, why not? Just stop it, dude. I was just being friendly, having a conversation. I really don't want anything beyond that. I'm not. And it's like he doesn't think about where you are in your life. It's like I'll tell my buddies when they get rejected, don't take it personally. It could be for one of eight million reasons that you will never know about. Therefore, don't put any mental energy into it ever again. You are wasting your time. Like I said, maybe it's eight and a half million reasons why she said no. And you'll never know. So it doesn't matter. That's kind of how I explain it to them. Yeah. And that's, I think, what causes a lot, not even just casual relationships, but relationships is when people don't know and they try to imagine and then they think that their imagination is correct and then they act based on their reaction to their own imagination to something <laughs> they perceive through their filter mm. and they think they're reacting to the truth. And mm. that's where the trap lies so often. Like we think we react to what happened and there's so many things in between that each of them has like a little slight angle, a little slight distortion. And that's how people don't hear each other. That That's why misunderstandings happen, fights happen so often because of that. And yeah, relationships are fascinating. I'm just absolutely passionate about the topic. For me, the relationship is just like a portal to one of the ways into very deep and very fast personal development. Because I choose to believe that relationships are a mirror. Are what? I'm sorry? Are a mirror. Oh, a mirror. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's probably my Russian accent. Like a reflection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a reflection of us. So sometimes it's really hard to see your own shit internally but when it shows up in another person and we get triggered by another person we think it's them and we respond but if we really take a pause and look inside it's like okay why did i really get triggered oh because i judge him for that trait but i only judge him for that trait because i probably have that trait and i don't like it in myself so i'm going to judge it so i use every relation i mean every relationship romantic friendships business colleagues drama, trauma, positive ones, anything as a way to have a deeper look into myself mm-hmm. and a way to like see like, okay, if if people in my life are showing up as like amazing, open, authentic, powerful, courageous human beings, I'm like, yay. If I start attracting too much drama in my life, which I don't anymore, like used to, then I was like, oh, where do I have my internal drama? What's that about? Or if I start getting judgmental people in my life, it's like, oh, I'm in judgmental mood. What's going on? <laughs> and the mirrors, they are so fascinating because sometimes they're just straight up. They're just reflecting a quality I don't own with myself or I reject or judge. But sometimes it shows up like super sideways. I'll tell you a little story. I was dating a guy a few years ago. And it's probably the only time that I had a relationship when somebody 
said they want to be exclusive, insisted on it pretty much, which I said, I don't need that. He's like, no, 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 like I really want. And I was like, that doesn't sound like you, but okay, mm-hmm. sure, let's try. And then I get a message on my birthday from a girl on Facebook saying, what are you doing with my boyfriend? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I asked him and he went sideways and backwards like, no, he's she's not my girlfriend. I was like, well, she doesn't think that. So through the conversation, I realized he was not truthful with me. And shortly after we broke up because there was just a symptom of yet bigger misalignment. But I asked myself, okay, if that showed up in my life, what part of me does that reflect? If he showed up as something, the quality of like saying one thing and doing another, that like incongruency, saying you're committed when you're not, saying you want something but showing up differently, say you want to commit a relationship and they'll go flirt with somebody in front of me. How did that show up in my life? Because that has to reflect something in me. Otherwise, it wouldn't have shown up. I couldn't see it. Because I'm like, well, no, I'm not afraid of commitment. No, I don't cheat on people. No, it's like, no, 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 I don't lie. But there got to be something because it showed up. It has to be. It took me three months, Brad, to find an answer. Three months. It bugged me because I'm like, if I don't find an answer, it's going to repeat itself. I don't like repeating. So in three months, I realized where it was. How did it come to you? Well, it was a lot of meditation. I was just sitting with that question and I kept asking, like, where do I do that? Where do I do that in my life when I say one thing and do another? Where in my life do I say that I'm committed and my actions show in that I'm actually not? And in three months, because I looked in the box of relationships and I couldn't see it. But what I realized is that energy showed up in me towards my dreams. I say I'm committed to a successful business and sometimes I do actions that will lead me there and sometimes I don't do anything. I say I am committed to a successful business and I don't have a single sales calls in a month. And I don't have any front-facing customer conversation or public appearance or anything else, but I still say I'm committed to creating a successful business. They don't line up. And that was a hard truth that I got to see. It's like, okay, well, now I honestly see that like I am not committed to my business. And even that, committed to what? I realized I hadn't had a specific goal. What does it mean, a successful business? Like, is $1 successful? Is one customer successful? What is that? It was undefined. It was vague. And I was not committed to it at all. And then I had to have a choice. It's like, okay, I discovered I'm not committed. What am I going to do about it? I either have to recommit or I have to decommit. If I want to be in integrity, that is. And... At that time, I recommitted, and then I started doing public speaking. I built a website. I started having uncomfortable at that time sales calls, and the ball started to roll. I started training people. It was great. So that mirror of incongruency that showed up in another person in a completely different context about him lying a relationship about a relationship was reflecting that I was not congruent with me and my dreams and my business. Fascinating. So for me. Anytime that shows up, people's like, oh, he's such an asshole. I'm like, hmm, interesting. To me, it's like such a game. Ever since I started looking at relationships that way, A, it's more empowering because if they're just a reflection of me, if I work on me, the relationship will get better. And it's not about them. It's if something is not working, it's my responsibility. I mean, it's theirs too, but that's their work to do. And it's just been a very fascinating journey and so rewarding because if I create or like when I create relationships, I truly enjoy, I like celebrate and I devour them and just take it all in. And when I create something I don't prefer, it's an opportunity for growth. 
And talk. with every relationship, I get better and better, and every next relationship gets better and better. Talk to me about masculine-feminine polarity. How mm -hmm. do you think about that? Well, I think it's very important for relationships. Did you have it with him? Did you feel like there was an initial magnetic attraction and were you able to oh, maintain with that person? it? Yeah, 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 yeah. He had the very good masculine energy. He was out of integrity and that's when depolarization happened because I didn't respect his masculine because for me, congruency and man of the word is part of the masculine energy. And when that went away, the attraction kind of went along with yeah. it. But initially, yeah, he was very charming. Hence, many women in his life prior to me and probably past. And yeah, polarity is so important. And I, I didn't understand polarity when I was growing up or years ago. It was such a mystery to me until I started reading books about it. David Data, author being one of them. And I'm surprised that you read David Data. Why? Well... He wrote The Way of the Superior Man. Yes. If there was a book called The Way of the Superior Woman, I don't know that I would read it. Well, I read that one, and I read all his other ones. He wrote books for men, for women, and for both. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. And Dear Lover was the one that's written for women. But The Way of Superior Man book, I read that book, I was crying. I was crying because finally somebody put in the words the kind of relationship I was looking for. When I was reading about that like third stage relationship or like intimate communion, how he calls it, I'm like, that's what I want. I don't want a codependent polarity. I don't want that. I want where both people come together when they're fully whole and complete and they choose to be in their masculine or feminine. Mm -hmm. And they choose to give because they want to give, not because they want to get something for it. Changed my life. Like his description of the levels of evolution through the energies, his description of the shells that we have, the masculine shells, the feminine shells, totally demystified why I was attracting the kind of man I was attracting. It was so fascinating. It was totally one of the books that changed my life. Books are so amazing. It's so crazy that people don't read them. You've written things before. You know how much effort is put into it. So for all of the effort that's put into a book, one, it makes you realize how much you don't know because it's like, wow, if I got all of this from this book, there are so many books I haven't read. But two, they've put so much effort and they only sell it for like 20 bucks or less. A book, a good book, like a David Dida book should be worth $125. The fact that it's not and we don't read it is... A mystery that will forever remain so, I think. I, I don't I don't understand. Yeah, I think some people don't read books. They like to listen to books, and that's fine too. And what I find the best time to read a book is when you have a problem in your life or you have like a goal in your life that you're trying to achieve and it's not working, and then you read something that you can immediately put into practice. Yeah. And then you can immediately reap the rewards because if you just read a book about something that does not apply to your present life, you'll forget it. That's a good point. And it won't change anything because that's how our like neural network works. Like if you just read it and you don't repeat it, you don't review it, you don't do anything with it, it prunes apart. But if you learn the concepts and then you apply the concepts and you have an experience in your life, you create certain results, that's when your life changes. Like that's what happened for me for like some of the books that I read and I forget. And there's certain books, there's like one other book that 
I read probably nine years ago now, and I've been rereading it once a year and applying and mastering those skills ever since. That changed my life. The practice of it changed my life. We only have so much time left in life, and I think both of us would be better off to stop reading any new book and just reread what we've read already. It's so hard to do, but I know that I would be better off doing that. I don't know if it's just me or if it's like that for everyone, but for me, books always come to my life intuitively. Like, it's not that it's like, oh, let me look for a book that solves this problem. It's usually I'm going through life and I'm dealing with something and it's either a friend recommends me a book or it pops on my laptop out of nowhere. It's like, oh, that's an interesting title. They always come to me. And then I read them. It's like, wow, that's exactly the perfect book I should have read right now. There could not be no better book. Even like that book that we talked about, The Artist's Way, I would have never picked up that book. Like I look, it's like, oh, creativity, art. I'm like, eh, doesn't relate to me. But a friend of mine shared that book with me. And she said, that book really allowed me to tap into my creativity, which allowed me to start creating my own coaching programs instead of teaching somebody else's. And I'm like, L. And it also unlocks all the blocks of you being fully you and like stepping into personal brand and just really, because creativity is creating anything. It's not just paintings. It's not just dancing. It could be a vision. It could be a business. It could be a program. It could be anything. It could be a podcast. It could be a podcast. Yes. And when she put it that way, I'm like, that's exactly the book I should read right now because I'm going through that in my life. Yeah. And it was totally the perfect timing and so many lessons from that one too because it was the right time and it was applied to something I was going through. I think that's the best books. The best books are the ones that help with you, help you with something that you're going through right now. That is so true. Have you read The Power of Now? I have, but so long time ago. You know... Mortimer Adler, who wrote How to Read a Book, recommends interacting with the book, making it your own, writing in the margins, making your own table of contents, even reading the end of a book before you decide to invest the time. And that is a way that you can try to overcome what you're talking about, which is like just-in-time inventory, right? Where you have the inventory and you need it right now and you want to do some fun questions before we wrap up? Sure. All right. Let me ask you, have you ever purchased an app on your phone? Purchased an app? No. Never? No. Somebody asked me that question, I and I had always so. said no. And then I realized one day that I had a charge, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do pay for an app. And I don't remember which one it is now. Like, I purchased things through the app? <laughs> Like Amazon Kindle. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like $2.99 for an app. Not that I can remember. Like I saw on Reddit one time that question was asked. And somebody said that there was this weather app that was amazing. And everybody agreed. And I'm like, how can that be? How can it be so good when you've got all these free weather apps? I don't know. But people pay for apps. A lot of people yeah. I've had people I, answer that question. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, I buy apps every month. Yeah, I can't say for sure that I didn't, but it doesn't come to mind right now. Which app do you spend the most time on? For work or for personal life? Oh, good question. Give me both. <laughs> for work, it'll probably be Slack or Zoom. Probably and either. Personal? Yeah, personal. 
Gmail. Gmail. Well, I don't really spend that much time. I open it often. Yeah, I'm looking at my apps now. I can't see anything that I've paid for. It could still be Zoom, actually. Well, it's so hard to separate personal life and business life because I, <laughs> I have a consulting project that I'm working on. I have my personal business I'm working on, which for me is part of life because it's my passion. And then I have hobbies on the beach and you don't need an app there. <laughs> no, Doc? I don't have any yeah. apps that I've paid for. Oh, Headspace I've paid for. Headspace. Yes, it's a meditation app. Ah. I'm a big fan. Okay. Yeah. I think you really have to like the person's voice who's leading your meditation. Like Sam Harris, I would never let him lead me in meditation. But Don't like his voice? It's not his voice per se. It's more, it's other stuff. I just think he's a phony in so many ways. Because he claims to be highly emotionally intelligent, and I would argue against that, and I could cite examples for days. But do you use your phone as an alarm clock? Yes. You do. Do you believe in the blue light, like how that messes up your sleep? Yes. And I have blue blocking glasses that I wear when I remember before I go to bed. Interesting. So if cost were no issue and you could go anywhere for a month, where would you go? Right now? Mm, yeah, why not? Why right not? now, no. I Nowhere. would stay here. You uh -uh. would stay here. I, I want to not travel right now. <laughs> All expenses paid a year from now. When your lease is up, you can go somewhere for 30 days. Where are you going? Bora Bora. Bora Bora. Good choice. If you could take a few books with you, which would you take? The ones I would want to reread. Which are? Susan Campbell, Getting Real. Susan Campbell, Getting Real. David Data, Intimate Communion. What is it? David Data, Intimate Communion. Intimate Communion. Yep. He is and such a good probably author. probably The Artist's Way. That one, I feel like I have more integration. Like, I read it, but I don't feel like I fully integrated it through my actions yet. So I got to mm. reread it until I do. Very good. You could also take one band's album. Which would you take? Album? Yeah, like CD or... Oh, I'll take some Kizomba dancing music. Yeah? That would do. Kizomba dancing music. Yes. All right. Let's say you found an envelope in a park in Playa with 10000 US dollars in it. What would you do next? I would not pick up an envelope no. <laughs> laying on the floor in Playa. <laughs> no? No. It's just too risky because yeah, it could you, be cartel related well, it could or... Be, it could be anything. And, like, I don't pick up envelopes from the floor, period. That just Interesting. sounds weird. Even if you saw money poking out. Especially that, because that would feel like a trap. Huh. I'm going to ask that question more to see what other <laughs> answers I get. I've never asked that question before. Here you go. Okay, do you invest in anything U.S.-related, like index funds or individual stocks like Apple or Amazon? Nope. No? Never have? Never have I ever. During training, I never actually got into seriously investing in stocks, no. Do you find... Americans have a different reaction when you say you're from Russia than, say, someone from Germany or France? 
It's hard to say because I don't know the comparison, but I never really... People say, oh, Americans hate Russians. Like, if they do, they never showed it to my face. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think... So, to me, it'd be more like Russia's more of a black hole to Americans. Yeah. Like, we just don't have any vision into it. That's yeah. how I feel. Now, like, I have a lot of friends who are Russian, live in the U.S., and they're like, oh, yeah... We feel so discriminated because we're from Russia and people hate us right now. And I personally, personally, I have never experienced that. Yeah. Like that's something directed at me by somebody sitting in front of me. Yeah, I'd be interested to know their experience because so many times when I hear stories like that, I think, oh, well, that's happened to me. Or that's just somebody being mean. People are assholes or whatever, you know? Right, like how much does that have to do with... Russia versus what Russian. they ate for yeah. dinner that day versus what happened the night before. You don't know. Where do you think you'll live in 30 years? I have no idea. Somewhere warm and sunny. That's, warm that's a and high sunny. likelihood. Because where, where exactly, I don't know. Your parents are from, and you lived as a kid about 100 miles northeast of Moscow. Is that yes. right? And that must have been very cold there. In winter. In summer, it's really nice and warm. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's all for four seasons, proper four seasons. And I know you told me it was called Zaborsk when you were a kid. Zagorsk. Yeah. Right, now it's Sergiev Posad? Yes, you With got it. With the fall of communism, it changed names? Yeah, in 1991, it did. How does that happen? Was, it, was there like a vote? No. Well, it was called... Sergei Posad before. Oh, okay. And then they named it Zagorsk in the years after. So like St. Petersburg, when, when, Leningrad, St. Petersburg. Yeah. So <laughs> when the politics wind down, they return it back to its original name. Interesting. So I think that's what happened. So, no, I was just, you know, signing a different address on the envelope. But other than that, didn't really change much. You don't strike me as materialistic at all, but do you have thoughts about like a dream home or a dream car someday? Dream car, I don't care that much. Dream home, yeah, we'll be very close to the vision I had in Costa Rica. I would love to have a home in nature, close to water, whether it's ocean or bay or waterfall or river, I don't care, but it has to be natural water, not the pool. And... I would like it to be in a community of like-minded leaders who have the perfect blend of material and spiritual nature and mind, like all of the aspects of what I'm passionate about. And then we can live in harmony alongside each other and go knock it. Like so many of my friends are far, far away. Like I have friends in so many different parts of the world and most of my communication with them is through Zoom and Skype and Telegram and not Skype anymore, I guess. And I want to have an experience when I want to see my best friends and I just walk across the street, knock on their door and we can have tea. Mm. Like that's what I want. Yeah. Like nomadic lifestyle is great, but I crave the other side, the grounded yeah. side. So yeah, beautiful place, lots of glass, lots of space. When I was shopping for homes in Costa Rica, you needed $200,000 to be a citizen. That's how much you needed to spend. Do you know if that's changed? It was that a few years ago. I don't know if it's changed recently. Mm. I haven't checked. If you could put a few words on a billboard, this is a Tim Ferriss question. I'm stealing it. <laughs> that 
many people would pass by and read it as they drive by, what, what would that message be? What would you want people to read? How many words? Just a sentence. It could be five or it could be ten or it could be three. That's a great rebuttal question. How many words? So you could <laughs> think about it. I like that. Very good question. The first thing that came, but it's probably cliche, but what I stand most for in the world is responsibility to create what you want. So the phrase that popped into my head right away was, was it Martin Luther King who said, be the change you want to see in the world? That. Yeah. Just be that. You want peace, be peaceful. Yes. You want connection, be connected, real, yes. authentic. Become what you want to see and the rest will show up. If it more takes, people would just focus on themselves instead of on how whatever's outside that's wrong, we would get there so much faster. Galena, do you have any questions for me? Uh, anything pressing you want to ask before I ask you how people can connect with you online? Yeah. What's the message you would put on a billboard? Find a way to be grateful. Galena, I really enjoyed this. It's everything I expected it to be and more. I knew we'd have a great episode. Thank you for being here, or I'm actually at your place, but thank you for <laughs> joining me on this episode. I came a long way so we could do it. How can people connect with you, and what is it that they can look at to learn more about you and your services? So they can connect with me on multiple platforms. I am on Instagram and Telegram and YouTube and LinkedIn and, well, Facebook. I have a website. So my Instagram and my YouTube, the English ones, are at galena.lipina underscore. Without the underscore is the Russian one. You'll know if you land there. <laughs> and my website is turningpoint.pro. LinkedIn, Galena Lipina, you can easily find that. And what my services, what I do is I help people create harmony with themselves and their relationships. And that includes their partner, their teams at work, their families and their friendships. And I also help people create and realize their true goals with ease and flow. And I have certain offerings, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. I teach group trainings. I also work with companies and teams to create specific people-related outcomes within companies and team building and culture and stress management. So kind of the same approach of interchange that leads to outer results that go through my whole life. It relates through that. I also do project management, so if somebody needs some things to be put in order in their business, I can help with that too. And yeah, and I do one-on-one -on -one coaching calls. I do one-on-one -on -one VIP days where you can spend the whole day with me and just really transform your life to the whole another level. And I also do group coaching and group trainings that transfer certain amazing tools that help you with creating hard coherence and mastering the change process in your life. I also teach dance. I love Kizomba. I mentioned it briefly. So tend to do it wherever I go. And that would probably be the main focus of what I'm standing for and contributing to in the world. Awesome. Listeners, 
I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend a couple hours with me and Galena Lapina. How cool is that name? She may be in the running for the best name to be on the podcast. Galena Lapina. That is a great name. So, folks, thank you. I don't have a show without you. You can follow my adventures on Instagram. I like to post stories there. I'm also on Twitter at man underscore overseas, and I offer coaching myself. Thank you, folks. 